electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are struggling to extend yesterday's gains, but the 10-year yield is back above 4% again. The market's early stumble this year has some rethinking their playbooks and will reveal the unloved part of the market our strategist says to buy. And consumer electronics show CES is officially underway. Siemens CEO making the keynote speech last night, a position Bill Gates has held for the past 12 years, according to Barron's. He joins us live from Vegas to unveil the industrial metaverse. Plus, seven CEOs in 11 years, a 75% drop in market cap since 2021, and Gen Z is already over it. Just a few of the issues plaguing Match Group, Elliott Management disclosing a billion-dollar stake with successful campaigns at Salesforce and Pinterest. Could the activists turn things around? We'll discuss that a little bit later on. Let's start with Dom Chu on these markets, though. Dom, the best you can say, I guess, is we're off the lows. Not just off the lows, but we are actually at session highs right now, Kelly. It's still red on the screen, as you can see here. The Dow Industrial is down about half of 1%, 165 points, 37,517. The S&P 500 is at 4760, down about two points. We'll call it relatively flat on the session. But again, at the highs of the session, you're talking 4761. So right about there at the lows of the session, we were at 4730 in the S&P 500. So significantly about 30 handles off the lows that we saw in the S&P. So again, flat on the session, slightly red, but it's still the best level of the day. The Nasdaq composite up one quarter of 1% to 36 points of the upside, 14,880 the last trade there. Thematically speaking, two key parts of the market are getting some attention right now. Big technology for sure, and specifically semiconductors on the heels of Samsung issuing that operating profit warning down 35% possibly. That was at one point really negative sentiment-wise for the sector overall. Names like On Semiconductor still down about one quarter of 1%. Micron, which makes that dynamic random access memory, down about 1% as well. You can see there... But if you look beyond there, Qualcomm is up 1.5%. Advanced Micro up 2.5% almost. And NVIDIA is up 3%. And by the way, I get to put a big star here because it is, again, at record highs for those NVIDIA shares. And then, of course, it's still the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference out in San Francisco. Our own Jim Cramer has been out there for quite some time interviewing those big CEOs. Well, names like Merck, Vertex Pharma, and Boston Scientific still catching a bid today, all up between a quarter to 1%. And all of these guys get stars because each one of these stocks hit a record high in trading today. So there's still a lot of investor interest in that healthcare sector, given the conference and, of course, all the M&A news emanating in the last couple of weeks. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. Does the market's recent weakness provide an opportunity for people to get more invested? Our next guest says most of his clients are still overweight cash and need to get back into the market. And he has some thoughts on exactly how to do so, both for stocks and bonds. For more, let's bring in Thomas Kennedy. He's the chief investment strategist at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. So your decisions, Tom, probably touch on what's going on with a lot of people's money these days. It's good to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. And what would you say this boils down to, trying to coax people out of cash still? 
our, our community, which is one of the biggest pools of wealth assets in the world, is still heavily overweight cash. So the rally that we saw in November and December has created a, a challenge for people to get reinvested. And we're calling it the everything rally. After the everything rally, what do you do? Uh, in November and December, you saw stocks and bonds outperform generally what you would have expected uh, the S&P 500 to give you in an average year, Kelly. So it is a challenge to get people over, over the hurdle, but I think there's opportunities in stocks and in bonds to really get there. What are the best ways to do so, you think, as you look around the, the universe? Relative to what's in the price, at the broad level, high level, I think the market has priced in a soft landing almost perfectly. If you and I were sitting here, Kelly, say six months ago, what should the market price for Fed cuts in a soft landing? I think the average person would say roughly 200 basis points over uh, a year, year and a half. That's what the market has right now. So I think for the bond market, the easiest thing to say is rate cuts are coming and that cash yield is going to go down. I can move out the curve just a little bit and maybe lock in a 5% yield. I think that's the easiest trade to make. But really what we really need our clients to get to do is to get some more capital appreciation and be ready for the next bull market in equities. Hmm. Yes, the S&P 500 is trading at PE multiples higher than historical averages, but small and mid-cap stocks trading relatively cheap. And that's where earnings growth should accelerate the most uh, with a better economic backdrop me, for 2024. Let me ask you one more about that because that's a really interesting point. But I think a lot of people who are on the sidelines would think to themselves, okay, do I hold my nose and just kind of buy the S&P 500 even though it's gotten away from me because it's typically the outperformer? Or do I go for something where there's maybe a little bit more quote unquote value, but it might lag over time, which my sense is maybe that small and mid caps do, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I think the historical backdrop, Kelly, important to recognize is small and mid-cap stocks tend to be the most sensitive to gro growth. And in the last 12, maybe even 18 months, interest rates have been the dominant driver. And as interest rates have come down, you've seen tech shares really snap back quickly. Price to earnings multiples on small and mid-cap stocks are cheap, uh, one, maybe two turns cheap, depending on what you're looking at. But as growth accelerates or gets re repositioned for higher expected earnings next year, we should see small and mid-caps outperform, at least tactically. The thing that's important for my clients is they're underweight this, this sector. And yes, I agree, getting beta is, a, is a, an easier opportunity set. But if we do get that firm soft landing, which we're, we're expecting in our baseline, small and mid-caps should outperform better. Interesting. I want to talk to you about bonds as well. And I'm, I note if you'll just stand by for a moment, Tom. I'll clear my throat and Rick Santelli can tell us what happened with the three-year auction, Rick. Yes, you know, this is the first of 110 billion of coupon supply in the form of three-year notes, 52 billion of them hitting the street not many minutes ago. Uh, I gave it a grade of B minus, boy minus, the yield, 4.105. And the primary reason for the decent grade is because when issued market on pricing at one Eastern was right around 411 and a half. So lower yield is a higher price. If you're the seller like the U.S. Treasury, higher price is a good thing. So pricing was a significant uptick. If you look at all the other metrics, the bid to cover was just a smidge light of 10 auction average. The indirect and the uh, directs were, were very uh, much in opposite directions. You had the best since August at 65.3 on indirects. Those are very important foreign buyers. The direct buyers, more like mutual funds and hedges, was a little on the light side, the lightest since August. And the dealers, they took about 1% more than they normally do. So the fact that it was on the screws and it did not tail 
gives this auction a nice start. Tomorrow, of course, we'll have 10s followed by 30s, 110 billion in its supply total. And just as a reminder, it's not all debt around the globe, Kelly, that's finding any issues uh, of finding investors to take it in. We had 20 billion uh, uh, of 20 years in the UK today, and that auction was historically strong. So there is a demand, especially in Europe, for some of these fixed income debt securities. The real problem is going to be the ongoing nature of all the supply that will be out there headed by sovereign debt. Back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. And let me turn back to Tom uh, here for just a remark. As you, it, it, Tom, we've talked about how you're trying to get people out of cash and not just into stocks, but even into bonds. The 10 years about yeah. 401 after that auction, so not a major response. But its stickiness, you could argue, is maybe a headwind uh, as we get into the year here. What's your pitch to clients? I think the, the long end of the curve, Kelly, is offering you carry-like returns. So buying a 10-year treasury rate at 4%, you should expect to get 4% returns there. After the everything rally, I think that's a challenge for fixed income. In our own framework, in middle of October, a 10-year treasury rate at 5% didn't make a lot of sense relative to the growth potential of America and where we thought the Fed was going. So I still think we can buy those rates, but on a relative value tactical basis, the front end of the curve looks more attractive. And you know, to, to come back to what Rick was saying, seeing solid um, traction at a three-year auction is not going to get anyone very excited, but it is showing you, or at least trying to show my clients, they can step out of cash and feel comfortable that these yields are, are going to be uh, a good carry trade for them. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see if it goes uh, over a little bit better in the weeks to come. Tom, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Thomas Kennedy with J.P. Morgan. Let's turn now to the broader economy where Wall Street saw Friday's better-than-expected jobs report as a sign of strength, that soft landing we were just talking about. But there is an under-the-radar warning sign in the numbers. Steve Leisman has a closer look. Steve? Kelly, yeah, while the December jobs report was widely hailed as strong, and it did cap a year when payrolls rose by $2.7 million, Consistent downward revisions to the data raise questions about whether there is broader economic weakness under the hood uh, of this economy here. The BLS has revised down job growth in 10 of the 11 months of 2023 by an average of 42000 per month. And we don't know yet about all of the revisions to November and December, along with the full revisions that happened a year later. The question is... Why are the data being revi revised and what does it mean for the U.S. economy? I talked to two top BLS economists uh, from the payroll division. They explained to me revisions are mostly but not entirely in this past year have come from problems with seasonal adjustments and they've been impacted by large swings uh, in the jobs numbers from the pandemic and after it. However, consistent revisions can occur during transitions. To wit, the last time we had such a consistent year of downward revisions, 2008, when there was a recession and the economy was entering it in a full-blown recession. And that year, 11 of 12, or call it 92% of the months, were revised down compared to 91% in 23 so far. Since 2001, you can see the average is slightly for there to be upward revisions, at least somewhat. Uh, so the total revisions were uh, only half as large in 2008 as or, or now in 23 were only half as large as they were in 2008 in that year job declines were made more negative now they're being made less positive so it's not as dire up to a point this weakness is probably good for a fed trying to loosen up the labor market but it's also a reminder that to fed and investors that there's risk on both the inflation and the unemployment side of the mandate kelly 
Okay, Steve, stay with us. Uh, my next guest was on the bullish side last year in the face of widespread recession concerns, remains upbeat now on the economy. And he says the job gains are being driven by three sectors in particular, healthcare, leisure and hospitality, and state and local government. They generated an average of 132,000 jobs per month compared with just 33K for other sectors. And he says these three sectors remain understaffed and will continue to hire robustly. Dean Mackey is here. He's chief economist at Point72 Asset Management. Dean, it's good to see you. What, how much longer uh, do you think that they need to go to, to fully staff up? Uh, hi, Kelly. I think these sectors have a long ways to go. Um, if we look at healthcare, for example, it's grown a, a little more than half as fast post-COVID as, as it had pre-COVID. And healthcare should be growing in size given the aging of the population. So we think that sector is going to be adding significantly in coming years. Uh, in addition, leisure and hospitality, state and local government are actually at or below pre-COVID levels of employment. So it's no mistake that these three sectors are hiring aggressively right now. And all indications are that they are actually understaffed still and will be hiring robustly throughout this year. What would you compare this cycle with, Dean? Does it have any precursors? I think that what we're seeing here is the long lags still from the pandemic. And we haven't really experienced anything like this in our working lifetimes. Uh, and, and I think that's why many people are looking at this as they're somehow acyclical sectors. But these sectors, I think, are the most cyclical sectors coming out of the pandemic. And that's why I think they will be powering job growth going forward. Steve, I just want to bring you in on that note. What do you think? Well, I will say that the fact that job growth is so concentrated is one of the uh, items in the list of those who think that the job market is weakening, that it is not more broad-based, essentially. That's something that we keep hearing a lot of from different folks, uh, that, that it's just these sectors. Um, I, I do think there is more to go. I, I will say that in my talk with the BLS economists, I asked them, well, why don't you just X out the effects of the pandemic? And they said, well, can you guarantee to me that the job market is going back to the way it was before the pandemic. I think what Dean is saying is, is smart and it makes sense. When I look at, for example, having reached the level of the pandemic and employment, well, that doesn't take account for the growth that's happened to the economy. No doubt we need more healthcare people uh, in all aspects of the healthcare. No doubt we need more in education. But there's just also no guarantee that we're going back to the economy we had previously. And so you've got to make room for, for changes in the economy that are going to be lasting from the pandemic. And Dean, if I could jump in and kind of make this a question to you, it would be about the traditionally more cyclical sectors like manufacturing, where we've seen those negative ISMs. How does that piece into all of this? Well, certainly manufacturing job growth has slowed down. And in a sense, that's what the Fed rate hikes were trying to accomplish, was to slow down the cyclical sectors to some extent. And really what that's accomplished is we've gone from job growth of 700,000 per month down to about 165,000 per month. And that's a lot more sustainable. That's what we've seen over the last three months. The unemployment rate is still sitting down at 3.7%. So it's not as though this slowdown in job growth has caused the unemployment rate to shoot upwards as many people had feared. Rather, this is allowing the unemployment rate to stabilize at a very low level. Are we going to look back, Dean, and say, well, as I remember from, from past cycles, the three sectors you're citing for job growth are often the last place that a downturn shows up. Is there just a lag effect here? I don't think so. And I think that's what is different about this cycle. It is the pandemic cycle. These sectors are still very depressed relative to pre-pandemic readings. 
And I don't think they need to be as depressed as they are. Healthcare, leisure and hospitality, those should be growing along with the economy. And so I think that these sectors have had trouble staffing up and most firms in these sectors are understaffed. For example, that's what we're seeing strikes in the healthcare sector about is understaffing and overwork of their employees. Right. So I think there is still a lot of hiring left to do. Quick last word, Steve. Yeah, Kelly, you and I have talked about this stacking effect, the idea that you would go into a recession if all of these industries were negative at once. One of the things that has been good about the process is we've had already some uh, um, uh, uh, changes and, 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 and restructuring in certain uh, uh, sectors already. So the idea that these three sectors are pulling us through this period when other sectors are, um, are, are adjusting, that, that's, that's a good thing for the economy. And then you may be on the backside of things like transportation and warehousing and other sectors that have uh, uh, in, in the down cycle from the pandemic, they could be coming back uh, at a time when the economy will need that strength. No, you've been early in identifying that, Steve. Maybe we can ride it out here. Steve Leisman, Dean Mackey, thank you both. We appreciate your time today. Let's turn now to one place that is often a barometer of overall job growth in the economy, small businesses. And they are getting slightly less pessimistic on things, although they still see two major issues threatening to tip the country, yes, into a recession by year end. Kate Rogers has the details. Kate? Hey, Kelly, the National Federation of Independent Business out with its monthly read on optimism for the month of December, increasing slightly, as you said, 1.3 points to 91.9. That is among the highest readings of the year, but it's also below the group's 50-year average of 98, and it's been there for about two years now. The top issues for Main Street this month, inflation, quality of labor, and taxes. Inflation moving back into the top spot for December ahead of labor issues, but those two remain really sticky for small business operators. Operators. The NFIB reporting overall views on the economy are still broadly pessimistic at the moment, although slightly improved. The group's chief economist, Bill Dunkelberg, writing in his commentary that 2024 will be a slower year. Quote, overall, the growth rate will most likely be lower than last year. The economy will slow down, possibly delivering that long predicted recession by year end. High interest rates, Kelly, are also of concern. In a separate credit survey, the NFIB found those rates were impacting decisions around financing and that about 80 percent said high rates were their biggest issue with accessing capital. That's up from just under 60% over the summer. The average rate paid on short-term loans was 9.8% in December. That's up from 7.6% one year ago in January of 2023, although the CapEx number for small businesses was still slightly higher in December. So a lot of mixed messaging there. I don't know if we can show that chart one more time. The, the rates they're paying it's exactly what the bears said was going to happen. They said small businesses yeah. are going to be paying 9% interest and they're not going to make a go of it, but yet somehow they are muddling through. Are there any sectors, though, Kate, in particular that are struggling here? Uh, the two big ones, we talked about it on your show on Friday. Construction was one of the areas uh, that the NFIB called out, as well as transportation that are still struggling to find workers. They said agriculture was faring a bit better, Kelly, and finance as well was doing okay. Oh, interesting. Kate, for now, thanks. We appreciate it. Our Kate Thank Rogers, you. finger on the pulse of small biz. Coming up, the industrial metaverse. Sony and Siemens unveiling a new mixed reality headset targeting that market at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. In a contrast to Apple's more consumer-focused Vision Pro, the CEO of Siemens joins us live next to discuss that. Plus, one company you might not expect to be out at CES is L'Oreal, but you can't spell hair or nails without AI. 
and the companies using it to develop everything from lipstick printers, yes, lipstick printers, to skin diagnostic tools. Their CEO will also join us ahead. As we go to break, here's a glance at markets, which are moving lower again. Dow's down 180 points, half a percent. S&P's only down four, though, and the Nasdaq is up a quarter percent despite some weakness in the chip space. The 10-year yields 4.013 after that weak three-year auction. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's not just Apple getting into the headset game. German tech and industrial giant Siemens announcing at CES today they'll bring their latest software to Sony's new mixed reality headset. Let's dive further into the details now with Siemens CEO Roland Bush. Roland, a pleasure to have you joining us here. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Are we right to understand this as primarily a business and industrial product, not a consumer one per se? Or how would you ex- explain everything that's happening here? No, that's true. This is really made for the creators um, in order to immerse into what we call the industrial metaverse. So you have um, a virtual representation, we call it a digital twin, a physics-based digital twin of um, any kind of product you have. And with this headset, creators can really immerse themselves and deal with the product in the virtual world as if you would have it in your real hands as a real product. Talk to us about Siemens technology, Sony's hardware. I mean, you guys have been very active. You've talked about having partnerships with NVIDIA, uh, working on the metaverse and so forth. What's the vision as to what this uh, product and this category and the innovation here will look like in maybe two or three years' time? So the idea behind this is basically having the industrial metaverse, and it's different from the metaverse because it's really is a physics-based digital twin. So we don't animate, we simulate. So it's all the physics behind what happens when you shake it, when you heat it, when you even load software on your product in the digital world. So this one thing. And then you want to have it um, immersive. That means you want to get the, uh, the feeling that you're really, you're really literally into in the um, metaverse and you experience um, everything there and you optimize it. You um, optimize your manufacturing lines, even the people on the shop floor. Uh, Your product can be redesigned in no time, um, supercharged by AI. So that means all the experience which you have in the past from the data from your designs would be rolling into that one. So you optimize your product and then you build it. That saves you money, that saves you time, drives your productivity up and uh, also saves resources um, and makes your product more recyclable. 
So that's the benefit we have. And we do that obviously in, a, in the ecosystem. So we have NVIDIA. They give us the, their platform um, in order to really make a, a, ver, a photorealistic image. Yeah. We have AWS. We work with them on, on, on their cloud technology, but also on their AI platform with Microsoft for a co-pilot. So um, and bring that together to solve real world problems. That's what we do. So the headset has had a stop and start uh, track record so far. A lot of different people have tried it, mostly yes. consumer facing. It does have some applications, obviously, big in gaming in the industrial world. Is this really the year the headset becomes a thing? Yeah, and you know, this headset is a little special. I mean, it's number one, of course, is the immersiveness, but also you have tools in your hand where you can really interact with the, the parts which you have in the virtual world change them, design them um, real time, so to speak. So it's really geared for the professional consumers, which are, which are creators, um, engineers, mechanical engineers. And this headset in combination with the software which we are offering, the cut software, the 3D software, that makes a big difference and can boost really productivity in the design and creativity in design very much so. So it's different from that what you see as a headset for gaming, for example. Understood, and I don't want to make it sound like the headset is the only thing going on here. You guys are talking about, uh, you have a intelligent habitat solutions and uh, different kinds of, uh, of innovative products. Just talk us through these. What's the most important thing on your lineup for the next six, 12, 18 months? Yeah. So um, what we talked about yesterday is also launching a virtual PLC. So the programmable logical controller. These are the mini brains which are controlling the manufacturing lines. Currently, these are really industrial products with industrial coding language. And what we do is we do what, what you experience already in the IT world, that you have a, your virtualization. That means you bring that, you detach these PLCs, these mini brains from the line, bring it somewhere in a central stack um, and you can even fulfilling real-time requirements um, control your manufacturing line out of a room, basically, out of a private cloud, if you want. So that's one thing. The other one is we are teaming up with uh, AWS on enriching our low-code programming platform with AI. So you can easily now put um, AI functionality into your application, which you developed on, on this low-code platform. That's, a, that's another area which we are working on. And to bring that together makes really the, the industrialization um, of, for example, in the United States, where you have a lot of companies rolling in now their manufacturing lines, stimulated by the IRR. So we want them to really have a higher productivity. If you go all in with digitalization and software and automation, then you really can be competitive also in a, in a high labor market. At sure. the same time, you have labor shortage and you can run a manufacturing line with less labor and still be high, highly productive. Roland, my last question is about your, you know, Siemens home country. You know, just today we have these headlines about how China has surpassed Germany as an autos exporter. Um, the country's industrial struggles over the past couple of years are well known. Uh, there's a, even the trains are running late <laughs> these days, as I understand it. Do you see Siemens and all of the investments that you're making as being potentially at the forefront of a renaissance? So the point is that, I mean, I mean, maybe people talking Germany a little bit down, 
So we have very strong, um, small and medium-sized companies, uh, hidden champions. Also the automotive industry is strong. They have to have their homeworks. We do have problems on infrastructure. We were, we were basically running on substance for the last 10, 20 years. So we have to put investments in there. The government understood it clearly and they are working on it. This goes back to the problem on trains. It's not the trains, it's the infrastructure. Hmm. So we have to do our homework. Um, and the homework is basically banking on what made Germany and German industry strong, which is innovation. Um, we are very strong in bringing new products to the market, innovating, and this is our ecosystem. It's the small and medium-sized enterprises, the big ones. One last thing, we were benefiting from a low energy price, getting, getting the slow-cost uh, yes. gas from Russia. This is over, and this is, makes a, a transformation in the energy-intensive industries. They have to rethink what they do and where to allocate their capital. This is another element, but all in, I'm more positive. I do believe there's, there's, a, there's a great future and we can do a lot of benefit in a world which has a lot of challenges. Um, sure. Is it CO2 reduction or is it feeding 8 billion people? And as you say, the challenges that the business faces maybe makes them all the more interested in solutions that your company and others may have to offer. Roland, thanks for joining us today. Uh, congratulations on the keynote. We look forward to what else is up your sleep. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Roland Bush is from Siemens. Coming up, Boeing shares down 10% in a week after the FAA grounded all 737 MAX 9s. We've got the latest on that, plus its new delivery numbers with the shares down another half percent. And check out nat gas prices. Speaking of the cost of energy, they are popping 10% today, going back to their highest level since mid-November. The EIA did say they anticipate both record demand and output for U.S. nat gas in 2024. We'll keep an eye on it. We're back in a moment with the Dow down 206. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Boeing shares are coming off their worst day in over a year after the FAA grounded its 737 MAX 9s for safety inspections. The company today, meanwhile, announcing strong delivery numbers at least through December and last full year, meeting the revised goal. Phil Lebeau has all of the details. Hi, Phil. Hey, Kelly. In terms of the investigation that's going on right now at the NTSB, um, we do not expect to have an update today and may not have one for several weeks. They had their last update last night in Portland and they basically said, hey, we're going to go back, we're going to start analyzing the materials and we'll go from there. Meanwhile, the airlines, and we're talking specifically Alaska and United, they're waiting on the FAA to give the final, final, yes, you can do the inspections and then return your parked 7, uh, 8, uh, 737 MAX 9s. When they return to service remains unclear. Will it happen this week? Is it going to be a little bit longer? And Part of the reason for this is that loose parts at both Alaska and United were found on those grounded planes. How many? The extent of those loose parts when they were looking inside the fuselage remains to be uh, determined in terms of how much we learn about those. Meanwhile, out in Renton, Washington at the 737 MAX plant, there will be an employee state safety town hall that will be taking place in a couple of hours. That will be led by Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun. We know what his message is going to be. 
There has to be a better performance by the company, especially when it comes to quality control. Uh, you cannot have planes, uh, certainly can't have planes with parts falling off, but you can't have planes where people uh, or airlines are reporting that there were loose parts. And so that's going to be the focus of it. Real quick, take a look at shares of Boeing. You talked about deliveries and orders. We got the December numbers, and they were strong, Kelly. In fact, in December, the company logged orders uh, for more than 300 aircraft, one of the best months the company has uh, ever had. 369 planes were order, ordered with 1,114 ordered in 2023. Strong year, not just for Boeing, Kelly, but also for Airbus in terms of the airlines placing orders for future aircraft. Phil, while all of our attention is focused on Boeing and deservedly so, JetBlue's CEO just resigned. The company's having its worst day in over a year in what seems to be a pretty sudden change, although they're in the middle of this battle with the DOJ over the Spirit acquisition. And then this morning, B of A downgraded the stock to underperform, slashed its price target in half to $3. They're also expecting capacity to be down this year. What do you make of all this? You got a lot of headwinds against JetBlue right now and a lot of uncertainty for the new CEO, Joanna Garrity. The sell-off is not because Joanna Garrity was named CEO, and she'll take over on February 12th. She is highly respected, highly regarded within the airline industry, and it has long been assumed that when Robin Hayes, the, for, the current CEO who will be leaving, when he would leave, Joanna Garrity would get the job. That has long been the assumption, Robin Hayes announcing yesterday. Because of the stress and the toll that the job has taken on him, he is going to tend to his health, and then he's going to retire. And so you look at those two pieces of news and you look at the fact that we don't know if the JetBlue Spirit acquisition will get approved by a judge. The judge could rule in favor of the DOJ, which would send JetBlue back to the drawing board and saying, "Okay, if we're not hooking up with uh, Spirit in terms of growing our network, growing our capacity, what do we do? Uh, it, it, It would be a tough spot for Joanna Garrity. And it's also fascinating to me, Phil, that the argument is basically by the government. If you approve this, it'll be bad for consumers. And if they don't, JetBlue is, is going to be lucky to be a $3 stock, basically. It, it's just a strange conundrum for investors. Well, you know what the DOJ would say. They don't care about a stock price. They care about competition. Right, that would right. be their argument here. Uh, and, and in terms of investors, look, if, if this were rejected, Do I think it's a positive for the stock? No, I don't think it's a positive for the stock. On the other hand, there is some clarity, and JetBlue could say, okay, we know that this isn't going to happen. How do we grow the airline from here? Hmm, True. And either way, his successor will have their work cut out. Phil, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Our Phil LeBeau. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Ray Epps, a January 6th rioter who was targeted by conspiracy theorists for being a government plant, was sentenced to a year of probation today. Before his sentencing, Epps expressed regret for believing the lies that the election was stolen. He pleaded guilty in September to a misdemeanor charge for joining the January 6th mob attack, and prosecutors argued that Epps had encouraged the mob to storm the Capitol and recommended time behind bars. He has been in hiding due to death threats from accusations that he was an operative planted by the government. The NFL is offering buyouts to more than 200 employees at its headquarters in New York City. Employees across multiple departments were emailed a voluntary buyout package on Monday uh, and have until late February to accept it. Last March, the league laid off about 5% of its workforce. And a coroner has confirmed Irish singer Sinead O'Connor's death came from natural causes. They did not provide additional details. However, London police had said the singer's death was not suspicious when she was found unresponsive last year. 
Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you, and I'll see you soon. Coming up, one longtime hedge fund watcher says this will be the year in a surge of activist investing. And as for that high-profile proxy battle over at Disney, he says the tide may be turning in Bob Iger's favor. We will tell you why later in the show with Disney around $90 a share. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. They call it the Consumer Electronics Show for a reason. It's not just phones and cars being unveiled at CES this year. Hair dryers and shower heads are also making an appearance, thanks to the likes of L'Oreal, which just announced a slew of beauty tech products. And the company's shares are up more than 20% over the past year as the beauty category remains strong. Joining us now to discuss is L'Oreal CEO Nicholas Hieronymus. Nicholas, welcome. Hello, Kelly. Very nice being with you. Without making this too personal, you know, we're curious what exactly you had to unveil. This is a, a water pressure uh, shower head, we understand, and, and an infrared hair dryer. And, and what else? Well, we, uh, you know, we've been uh, here at the CES uh, presenting products for uh, almost 10 years now with many awards. And today we unveiled a, a few innovations. The, the newest one, the one that was known, not known to anybody, is uh, Airlite Pro. It's indeed a, a revolutionary hair dryer that uses uh, infrared light instead of uh, you know, heating rods that uh, allows to dry hair faster, 30% faster, without damaging the hair, 30% more moisture. And of course, and that's very important to us, uh, in a more sustainable way with 30% less energy. So that's really the one that's, uh, I think, is the most groundbreaking innovation in that we showcase today, amongst many others. Can I ask about that? Because that is very interesting. And obviously, you know, people don't want to burn their hair all, all the time. So who came up with the infrared technology? Was it researchers at your company? And do you think that we will all quickly in a few years' time be using this kind of technology to dry our hair? Well, uh, actually, this uh, invention was created by... Uh, by the startup that we uh, uh, met uh, last year at CES. It's called hmm. Zuvi. Uh, it's a Chinese startup, and uh, they came up with the technology, but their, uh, their hair dryer was, uh, uh, the hair dryer was not uh, at the level of, uh, you know, that we need for professional stylists and for you know, consumers. And that's why partnering with us, uh, with our deep knowledge of hair, our science of uh, the hair fiber, allowed us together to create what I think is the, the best hair dryer in the world today. That's really interesting. So it, it wasn't an acquisition. It's still this is a you know a, a, a collab, as they say, L'Oreal Professionnel uh, X Zuvi. Want to skip ahead over here as well? You have a color reader. Tell us about that. Well, you know uh, what's fascinating with beauty is that beauty is an innovation-led uh, market, and there's many products out there, and it's very difficult both for consumers and sometimes even for professional like stylists to find the right recipe that will might match a given consumer's needs. And the hair reader uh, allows you to really identify uh, the, the true, the natural color of your hair, even if it's colored, so what's underneath, uh, the state of your fiber, of your scalp, uh, uh, whether you have dandruffs and everything, and then it, it allows uh, a, a professional to give you the right prescription of products and, uh, if necessary, to choose the right recipe of hair color to make you look beautiful. So it's really enhancing and augmenting both the professional and the consumer and the capacity to choose and to be more satisfied. And I would love to try. You have a color sonic that's kind of looks like it could um, help you self-apply hair color. Yeah. Uh, that sounds really interesting. How many of these products, Nicholas, though, are marketing exercises and publicity for the company that never become mainstream mass market products? Or do they? I don't know if you can give us some examples from history. 
Well, we, 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 when we present something at the CES, of course, it's always like a concept car. It's, uh, it's in early stages of development, but uh, we have always the firm intention to uh, bring it to market. I will give you an example of a, a, a device that's called Perso that was showcased a couple of years ago at CES, which is a little machine that allows you to, uh, uh, to create every day your personalized uh, lipstick at home with cartridges, and it allows you to choose a color that matches your dress or, or, or have the same look as a celebrity you saw on TV, and the machine creates every day a different recipe. This is, has been presented at CES. It's now sold on the market. Uh, uh, lots of sales actually in China where they love these uh, uh, this, uh, type of products. Hmm. And there are many like this. The Hapta by Lancome, which is a device that allows people with uh, hand mobility issues to apply makeup, has been presented last year and will be on the market probably at the end of this year. So in most cases, well, I'm not aware of any that we haven't launched. Well, it's not only very cool, it makes me want to try a few things out. Do you think you should be valued like NVIDIA if you're such a tech-first kind of company? Well, we know we should be valued for what we are, which is the, the number one beauty company in the world. And I think it's a, uh, it's a very important claim because beauty is a market that's been uh, growing almost for 100,000 years. It's essential to humanity. It's innovation-driven. And we are an innovation company. We innovated for decades and centuries in uh, chemistry and hair biology or skin biology. And now we're partnering with the better, best tech inventors. So we're a bit of everything. We're a beauty company. We're a luxury company. We're a dermatological company. And we are a tech company. That's why we claim to be the leading beauty tech company in the world. You know, if this is journalistically sound, I'd say send us a few things. We'll try. We'll see if we can get things to match, you know, lip color and hair color. And we can do try. We can do all sorts of things, uh, maybe, you know, if we get permission. Well, Nicholas, thanks so much. Uh, congratulations. And we look forward to learning more. We appreciate it today. Thank you very much. Nicholas Have a great day. Hieronymus with L'Oreal. Coming up, stocks unable to hold on to yesterday's rally, down almost across the board today. Nasdaq's up four points. Uh, the Dow is still the underperformer, down half a percent. Yields uh, also are something to keep an eye on. The 10-year above 4% and decidedly so after that three-year note auction went over a little bit soft. We'll get more a check, a check on more of the biggest movers, I should say, next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Shares of Tinder owner Match Group are up around 3% today. This comes after the Wall Street Journal reported a roughly billion-dollar stake taken by activist investor Elliott. And our next guest says this is only the beginning of a huge year for activists. Joining us now is Ken Squire. He's founder and president of 13D Monitor and a CNBC contributor. You want to offer any specific thoughts about what they might want to do with the dating service first, Ken? Welcome. Yeah, sure. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, this is, you know, this is a company that's a, a far and away leader in online dating apps, as I'm told. And, and they, 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 they lead the market, but they've had four CEOs in the last six years. Tinder, the biggest part of that business, has had six CEOs in eight years. The median CEO tenure is, is, is just about a year. So it's hard to implement a long-term strategic plan with the new CEO every year. I think Elliott is going to probably look like they did at Pinterest to get on the board to help monetize um, some some of the the assets here um, to fix margins, maybe help with the growth. And you know, at Pinterest, they returned over a hundred percent in a year and a half um, since being on the board. So I, I, I do you attribute that success to them? Well, no. They, they, listen, the, the the success goes to the board and management team in every situation. Right, but yeah. I mean, were they was that really a key catalyst of theirs to figure out monetization with a declining user base, or did they just time it well? 
I think I think it was a little bit of both. I'm a hundred percent is is a big number, but um, but the activists can often be the catalyst to 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 motivate management, to motivate um, the board, to keep to keep people accountable. And I think and I think they did that. But the, the, at the end of the day, the credit goes to the management and the full board. So you think this isn't just about uh, you know Match or Pinterest, but really we could see a lot more activist activity this year. Where and why? Uh, yeah, activism. You know, for the last five years, as you know. The market has really rewarded growth over over profitability, and you've had a lot of management teams that are very good at growing companies. Now that that script is flipping, and people are starting to focus more on profitability. And there's a lot of CEOs and management teams that need to learn new skills, um, and that 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 you know this is an opportunity for activists to come in um, who are more value profit investors than than growth investors to either replace management or help them help them with with profitability and margins. And last year you saw, so let's go over the, the kind of bigger trend here. Um, what has been happening with activists over the last couple of years? And other than some big examples like Disney, where else should we watch for potentially some big moves? Well, so last year activism, the act, number of activist situations in the U.S. were down, but money going into activism was, was materially up. So essentially activists have this year in 2023 have had have had fewer fewer campaigns in smaller companies but taken larger positions. The big change in 2023 which I think is a trend going forward is activists at least had some partial success in 96% of their US campaigns that have already been resolved not wow. including um, we've never seen any numbers like that before. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the universal ballot, which was implemented last year. Hmm. And I think we see some of that going forward. What's the universal ballot in, in 13 seconds? <laughs> universal ballot basically allows, allows shareholders to pick, to have the most flexibility in nominating directors. So they don't have to just pick from the activist slates or management slates. They could take you know, as many as they want from one slate and as many as they want from the other. You know, with all the focus on ballots, the, I won't make a political reference, but that's very interesting uh, how that change is really bearing fruit. Ken, thanks as always for joining us, bringing the knowledge. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Good to, good to see you. Ken Squire with 13D Monitor. That's it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, another day, another healthcare deal. This time it's GSK buying a biopharma company for about a billion dollars. We'll look at other potential deals in the pipeline with the healthcare sector hitting highest in a couple of years today. Tyler's getting ready. I'll see you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 